Um, you guys, it is good to see you. If you're a visitor, my name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Dorf Hope, and we are so glad that you're here uh, today. And I, I just want to um, just begin by actually practicing something that you hear me say all the time, which is that um, confession really is the, is the key to, to fellowship. Uh, and not only is it the key to fellowship, but it's really, um, it is the source of overcoming uh, because often we spend so much time trying hard to be something that we're not uh, that we never take the time to just be honest about it and find the freedom in basically just saying, hey, I'm struggling here. Can you pray for me? Which is sort of the essence of being a follower of Jesus is that we are born again into a family. And in that, in that family, um, it requires a, a certain level of risk to be willing to enter into uh, life with people. And with, with risk comes fear. And fear can often override the thing that is actually meant to diminish fear, which is love. Uh, and I just want to just share with you guys something that was kind of Maybe I haven't shared it because I haven't necessarily been aware of it. You know, historically, through Door of Hope's history, I've gathered with other lead pastors of churches. And there have been seasons. I remember about six months into the pandemic when everything was truly closed down. I went and met with all these, we had, had this dinner with all these, all these leaders of churches around the city. And most of them were like in full-blown emotional and mental crisis. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I wouldn't want to go to war with any of you guys. It's kind of seem a little, like, so easily shaken. Like, and I was like, I'm doing great. Like, it's been awesome. I kind of, first time I've been home for a while. And I, I just was oblivious to, I, I'm, a, I'm slow to the game is my point. It was impacting me. It was affecting me in a negative way. But I'm such an optimist by nature that I refuse to accept that this actually really does suck horribly. Um, and that kind of serves, you don't want nobody, very rarely are world leaders Eeyore, okay? Uh, um, you know, we, 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 t we, tend to go, we tend to go with Tigger. And, but Tigger can bring a lot of chaos where he goes, but he's fun, exciting, and people want to follow him. And that's, a, and, uh, um, and, and that's not necessarily what we want all the time either. We, we, I've actually been going through all the characters of Pooh, and I'm just not sure who, who, who it is. Because I'm not, I don't know if Pooh's the answer either. <laughs> it's definitely not Rabbit. He's always worried, or not worried, like too uptight. Piglet's a worrier. Yeah, I mean, you're not left with much, but Kanga, and she doesn't really have a personality um, <laughs> other than a cute baby. Uh, and Christopher Robin's a kid, and kids can't lead. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, there wasn't even a part of my sermon, and it just came out anyway. <laughs> That's what happens when one muses in front of people with <laughs> forgetting. My point is this, is that over time, the toll of three we're going into three years, has caught up with me. And over the Christmas break, it's been really, I would say over the last four or five months, I've been struggling. I've been having a hard time. Um, emotionally and mentally, um, so much so that I think my wife even had to secretly over Christmas break reach out to the elders and say, guys, my husband's in crisis and unwilling to admit it, please be praying for him. Now, I'm not telling you that I'm having an emotional breakdown and, you know, needing to check myself into anything. Uh, there's no, uh, there's no, no confession of, of, of anything that, that's disqualifying or anything like that. It's more of this overwhelming sense that God has so much more for us. And in my own stress and my unwillingness to confront it or to confess it or to talk to people about it, um, it's pushed me into this place of, of um, leaning into what I already, I don't know how to put it, other than this, I don't feel like you've been getting from me what you deserve. That's my point. I feel like it doesn't really matter if you come week after week and you're like, that's the best sermon I have ever heard if I know that that sermon came out of, you know, a week of chaos and me feeling like I've got nothing 
and recycled ideas that I'm passionate about, but I actually, I know that it's not, I'm not pushing in to what God has called me to be because I'm too busy trying to escape the stress of this impossible thing we call life. And I just want to say that I feel that pretty deeply right now. And, and I just, I, I, I felt it, uh, it kind of came to focus last Saturday night when I was, um, or Sunday night after I was finished preaching at a church that's looking for a lead pastor. I was not there as a candidate. I was just filling in um, as they're um, in this, been in this search for months called Rock Harbor. And I was talking with their, um, with the guy that used to be the lead pastor there, who's a dear friend of mine and over Alpha. And he said, I feel like preaching is kind of my weak side as a, as a pastor because it's too easy for me to, de- to default every time in my sermons to what I'm passionate about. Um, and to push beyond that, you have to give so much time and energy to thinking through and slowing yourself down and asking, Lord, what is it that you're wanting to say to your people right now? Um, and when you preach for 20 years, it's easy to have a whole back pocket full of default things that one says. And so I was already feeling that. I shared it with the staff, with uh, the preaching team on, on Wednesday. And then just two nights ago, my wife's like, honey, you seem like you're in a really good space. So I want to talk to you about something. And I'm like, what's that? She's like, you're preaching lately. And I'm like, what? She's like, it's good. It's good. But it's just, I feel like you're saying a lot of the same things because you're so deep in your book, you can't break free. I'm like, so what you're saying is what I'm feeling, which is that my preaching has been a bit of a Groundhog's Day. And that's a great movie, really. <laughs> and here's the thing, it's twofold. I don't want to own more than I need to own, and I don't want to, and I don't want to downplay what needs to be said. Some of the things that I say again and again, I'm saying because the Spirit is not letting me go past it, not releasing me from it. Because I'm just gonna say it, people, we have a hard time being honest about who we are and the struggles that we have. So my call to a radical vulnerability, you're gonna just, that's, I'm gonna beat that dead horse every week. But I also know what God has gifted me with and I need to, humility is not pretending you don't have something to offer because all of us have been gifted by the Spirit. And part of the gift of the Spirit is we receive what God has given us, but then there is this, this beautiful thing that happens when a gift that is truly a gift is exercised. And when it's exercised, that's learning to dig out the gold that's in the gold mine. And that, my friends, requires not just passive receptivity, but active engagement. And that's the rub and the, the nuance and the paradox of the Christian life. Everything that needs to be done has been done in Jesus. Nothing I'm sharing with you changes anything about God's love for me or my position as a Christian or you as a people. But what I am saying is that God has graciously moved in our lives, gifted us, and has called us to participate in his great work, the kingdom. And that requires a tenacity and a willingness to literally lay down and die for people. And that actually is the key to life. I have not been willing to let myself grieve over the fact that COVID literally caused so many people that I know and love to walk away from the church. And I'm reeling from it. I grieve over it. And because of my own natural disposition toward believing or even comfortably stepping into the zone of scapegoat is that I blame myself for things probably I need not blame myself for. But at the same time, I also think it's important to ask the question, how have I possibly contributed to people leaving? And when you're in this position, the critiques flow steadily like a like a fine glass of wine um, that's gone bad like five years ago. And, and it takes its toll. And you begin to believe. If someone says you're this way or you're the reason that this has happened, and you hear that enough times, we forget that our words are prophetic 
and those prophetic words can begin to take root and become a reality, and then you actually become the very thing that people are accusing you of when it may not have been the thing you were when they began accusing you of it. And this is why confession frees us from the lies that aren't true and also, and also allows us to release the things that are true that are forgiven. Because everything that we do that is sin has been forgiven. But forgiven sin can still wreak havoc in our lives if we don't bring it into the light. And so I'm sharing with you that I've been having a hard time, that I'm feeling pretty burnt out. And just saying that invigorates me to be really burnt out. I mean, I really want to burn out. Like, I want to go hard like a comet. Like, I want to drop dead at 55 because I, because, and you guys are like, well, he definitely gave us his all. Um, <laughs> and so, <laughs> uh, so my heart is this, is just, I'm sorry. I ask for your forgiveness. And you may not even totally know what I'm talking about right now. And that's okay, because I'm still figuring it out as well. But I just know that I've not been okay, and I haven't shared that. And part of it's, it's the fear, it's the nuance. You don't want your leader being like, I don't think that guy's stable and we shouldn't be comfortable following him. Um, you know, the, it, but I think that's a great lie that I've learned in leadership that sheep don't like shepherds that are nervous or scared or struggling because that's not a good leader. Uh, that's BS. The, the fact is, is what, what I think it takes far more courage to be honest that you are having a hard time and that courage is not the absence of fear it's fear under control and the way that we actually can bring fear under control is by speaking it out and not letting it have power over our lives and so with that I just felt like I needed a fresh start and I needed to, to take a, a break from Romans I have been so deep in the book let me just share with you guys and this is part of been a huge part of my struggle is I turned in an entire manuscript to a publisher. It's one thing when you're trying to get a book deal and you get rejected with manuscripts. It's another thing when you actually have a publisher excitingly sign you for a manuscript that's partially done and then you turn the manuscript in and then they say this isn't what we were expecting to get from you. That's a whole nother level of rejection that comes with stress because there's no escape because now you have to produce what they're asking for. Um, and that has been my world. And luckily, I turned in half the manuscript last week, and they are excited about it. So thank God. Um, but all of these things I've been working through as, as I've been learning to write, which is crazy in itself, um, are important things that kind of just sit always under the surface. And I just felt like, Lord, what do you want for this church right now? What where are we at? Because we are in a season of rebuilding, and there are lots of people coming to faith. There's lots of, there's momentum, but I think it needs to be momentum that's directed towards something. Um, and I, I, I was praying um, over the weekend, and I felt like the Lord just said, I, I want you to move into something that you've been thinking about. Thank you, sir. Um, something that you've been thinking about, but you actually haven't um, you haven't been speaking to with any kind of clarity other than little quippy memorable lines without actually explanation. And I can say that based upon the amount of emails that I've received from people asking for clarity around ideas that I've touched on without much depth or explanation. And that is this idea. A series we're going to enter into for a while to, as we take a break from Romans is what I'm calling Through the Looking Glass. And it's going to be an exploration of the paradoxes that are at the heart of what it means to be on the path of Jesus. And paradox is one of those things that we in general are not comfortable with because it's, it's nuanced. And on the surface, when you look at what seem like two opposing ideas or ideas that create contradiction, but in actuality, they prove to be true when placed together and properly understood. That requires an illumination of the Spirit. It requires a patience and, and a being still before God that the Spirit might speak to us in a way to help us understand. And one of the things that I believe has caused so many people to walk away from the church is, is the lack of understanding of how 
two opposing ideas can actually inhabit the same space. For example, the church is supposed to be a place of saints, but the only thing I seem to experience is sin. And yet scripture is absolutely crystal clear that a saint is a sinner, and a sinner that has been forgiven is a saint. And how does that work together? It's paradoxical, and we have to be able to reconcile those things. What about this kind of troubling idea? I tell you this, that no murderer, adulterer, um, uh, sexually immoral, liar shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And yet there isn't a person in the kingdom of heaven that isn't those things or hasn't been those things. And we turn everything into the Christ, in the Christian life into these black and white, attempts to put everything into black and white, and existence is far more nuanced than that. And when we don't understand the nuance, we find ourselves in a place of, of, of spiritual crisis because the faith that we were once so certain of has been shaken to its core, and we're not sure if we believe it anymore because maybe the core of what we believed before wasn't actually established on an accurate foundation. A partial truth, while at the same time optimistically ignoring other things that are at play, other things that were always there we just didn't want to hear and we avoided. And so I think that this is going to be really important. Some of the things that we're going to be hitting on over the next few like we're going to talk about the great paradox one God, three persons. <laughs> Can you think of anything more paradoxical than that? Not that you're going to walk away going, I get the Trinity. But there are basic principles about the Trinity that actually shapes much of what it means to be a Christian. We're going to consider what it means to be a sinner and a saint. I've had multiple people come up to me and ask, Josh, you talk a lot about mixture. You talk a lot about sin and the reality that it's something that we can't escape. But where's the victory? What does it mean to be a saint? Where's the victory in that? We're going to talk about this idea of one body and yet many parts. Unique. Every one of you bring a unique component to the church. But at the same time, there is a, a oneness that has to occur. And in an age of individualization, that oneness and that loss of our concept of the communal that died in the 20th century is, creates a confusion around that in the church. The church has become a place where I learn how to be my best Christian self today, where that's not the essence of the church. That's not, that's not God's perfect plan for you. No, God has a perfect plan. And for you personally, it might be incredibly difficult. It doesn't make it any less perfect. We're going to consider that strange paradox of death leads sometimes to more death. But it's also the only way to life what the difference is. We'll consider the fact that Jesus as the good shepherd says that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But have you ever thought about the paradox that the very person that died next to Jesus was a thief that entered into heaven as a sheep? These are the kinds of paradoxes that are found I literally from beginning to end. Jesus comes to bring peace as we're going to consider today. But it, at the same time, in the same breath, in the same sentence says, but in this world you'll have tribulation. And another place says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. Well, which is it, Jesus? Is it a sword? <laughs> is it violence or is it peace? And he would answer in his gentle voice, yes. So I think I need to preach this series because I have lost the nuance which creates the despair. But Jesus has come as the light of the world to illuminate our darkness and give us a vision of not only who he is, but what we are in him as his children. 
And the thing is, is it's hard to come into the light because you cannot come close to the one who loves you, loves you with an everlasting, immovable, inexorable, unstoppable love. But that love is also a consuming fire that is consistently revealing things that are unlovely in us who is his beloved. And that fire that, that inspires and inflames our heart with passion is also a fire that consumes and burns fiercely against everything unlovely in the beloved. And all of these things can be so easily forgotten under the, the, the multitude of ways in which the world is consistently vying for our attention. I want to just begin with this really powerful quote that's behind me by G.K. Chesterton. He is one of my great heroes. I have read most of what he has written, and he's written a lot. Um, and I love that there is not a book that he ever wrote that isn't filled, whether it's fiction, poetry, nonfiction, that isn't just filled from every page with endless paradoxes. It's, his, it's why they call Chesterton, in regards to the world of debate and apologetics, that he was truly the court jester. Um, for he would constantly enter into these public debates with men like Bernard, Bernard Shaw or H.G. Wells. And, and though they were um, uh, staunch enemies in their ideologies, none of them could say anything about Chesterton other than no matter what a foe he was or how much he would drive them crazy, they also considered him a friend because he didn't take the world too seriously. He took Jesus seriously. He took human existence seriously. And the playfulness at which he tackles hard issues is undeniable. This one on drinking is one of my favorites. There's a paradox. Look at scripture. One page. I mean, some of you are teetotalers and you're like, it's always a sin because you're products of American evangelicalism, which gave the world the, the abolition of, of, of drink, which obviously didn't work. Um, but yet scripture sometimes talks about wine as blessing. The first miracle of Jesus was water into wine. And don't try to say it, but it wasn't strong wine or it was wine devoid of alcohol. It's not wine if it's not alcohol and you can't drink wine without that alcohol having some effect on you, even if it's a small amount. And this is why Chesterton always said, it's sinful to be drunk, but it's a gift from God to be buzzed. Um, <laughs> look what Chesterton says here. The sound rule in the matter would appear to be like many other sound rules, a paradox. Drink because you are happy, but never because you are miserable. It's pretty true, isn't it? <laughs> never drink because you need it, for this is rational drinking and the way to death and hell, but drink because you do not need it, for this is irrational drinking and the ancient health of the world. This kind of paradox is that perfect picture of many spiritual truths. In fact, Chesterton would go on to argue that Christian, what brought him to faith in Jesus was what he said were the insane paradoxes of the faith. And he said, because at the center of our faith rests the central paradox, which is the paradox of the cross. The cross is a symbol that is marked by a contradiction. And it is a place where God's love collides with human sin, where judgment and mercy meet and find harmony. It's a place in which we find our singular anchor for existence. And I want us to understand this because as we move into this series, we need to understand that Christianity has never been anchored in a history of comfort or respite from difficulty. And we struggle with this because we struggle with paradox. Uh, we don't understand how it can be good news if Jesus is presenting to us love, joy, peace, but then throws on for good measure a caveat of, of heartbreak and suffering. It's very difficult for us to get our heads around that. I, I think 
And because we have this knack for hearing what we want to hear, we often miss the paradoxes and then are shocked when things don't work out the way that we thought they ought to. Because too many people say and allow a certain bitterness to come in when life just continues to deal you, with, deal you lemons. Um, and we think, man, I'm doing, Lord, look at all that I am doing for you. Right there, you have set yourself up for the most unbelievable failure because it is never, Lord, look at what I'm doing for you. It is always, look what he has done for me. And it's when we understand what he has done for us that our faith becomes strengthened because you can't look long at the crucified Christ. And I say, Christ on the cross turns the still soft voice of Jesus into a roar. It's the only place I hear him clearly. And it's the only place that actually gives me comfort and removes from me the need to understand the suffering that I have experienced in my own life because it is the only place that tells me God understands and I can trust him. And so I want us to move today into this first paradoxical truth that is central to the Christian faith, and we'll just call it the bread and the stone. Look at this verse in Matthew chapter 7. These two verses in 8 and 9. For everyone who asks receives. One of the great hang-ups in Christianity is, I've asked for so many things that I have not received. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Nothing feels like God has just tossed a stone into a basket of bread like disappointment and heartache and hurt and pain and suffering. When you find out that a family member is dying of cancer or someone you fall in love with has been unfaithful and your marriage of X amount of years has just been blown up or the job that you wanted came through and then you lost it as fast as you got it. I mean, the amount of lemons that life throws, I feel pretty evenly at times. Although it's, it's silly for us to measure our suffering against the suffering of others. Uh, and, and there are people that every time I am struck by the challenges of my own history and my own, the, the difficulty and brokenness of my own past, um, it's easy for me to either downplay that because I've met people that have gone through things that to me seems so much more overwhelming or to overblow what I've gone through because I've met people that feel, seem like they, man, this doesn't seem like they've been suffered at all. Listen, suffering will get all of us. To exist is to hurt as much as it is to be a gift. And life is weird, weirdly. You know, one of the reasons that we're so disturbed by suicide when it touches us is because it's not the normative movement, even in a world as nihilistic um, as our society. Although it is terrifyingly increasing as our society becomes more and more hell-bent on a humanistic secularism that's, that has defined for us this idea that God truly is dead and that you are the only God that actually exists. It's not surprising that this thing that actually is not natural to humans um, is moving up in its impact on our society. But you think about the Holocaust, one of the things that you don't hear about very often is those that were facing an inevitable death, being starved to death, still did not seem to think that the best thing we could do to not suffer or be any more dehumanized is to take our own lives. There's something in the human spirit that says, life, if I'm alive, in the words of Tolstoy, then live. If you're alive, then live. And that desire to live, even in the midst of great suffering, is something that is why we are drawn to the stories of human endurance, 
against incredible odds. It's why we were drawn to these stories because it's the triumph of the human spirit over great obstacles. And that's, that's, that's a part of our nature. But it doesn't mean that suffering uh, makes life, uh, that because of our desire to live that we can just handle suffering without it taking a toll on us, especially if we don't understand the reality of suffering as followers of Jesus, because many people come to faith in the midst of suffering and they find something they had not before, which was, is what I found. When I got saved at 27, I was in an absolute internal chaos, struggle. Darcy was on the verge of leaving me. So many things, my dreams had been smashed to pieces and yet Jesus broke in and I found hope and all of a sudden, I saw the world in a different lens, and I began to experience a liberation. And, and it's easy to think that that's what the Christian faith is. It's, it's the eradication of the suffering that I, that I once felt so deeply, but now I found, I found peace, I found hope, I found joy. And we forget that actually much of this, this, the circumstances maybe didn't actually change as much as you thought. It's just your ability to look at them became different. But for some reason, over time, we lose sight of that and begin to believe that actually this verse tells us that God is a cosmic Santa Claus for those who really have faith. And if you just had enough faith, God would give you what you wanted. And probably the reason that you're in the situation that you're in is because you're not that good and you're kind of a bad person and you probably deserve it. Or God actually isn't that good, as good as I once thought. And so bitterness sets in. And these all flow from faulty foundations that should not be <laughs> the controlling forces of our lives. Because one of the things that Paul says to the church of Ephesus is, I desire to see you grow into maturity in your understanding that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus I want you to come to such a robust understanding of this so that when the trials and the difficulties come, you don't abandon your faith. Whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is that thing. Know who it is that you place your faith in because you are in the midst of fiery trials and the, there are many and they will keep coming. Don't walk away from the Jesus who is the only means of enduring the things that are actually unavoidable with or without him. And so it is, I think that as Paul points out in, in, in Ephesians, he said, I don't want you to be tossed to and fro by the various winds of doctrine that continually come at us. And let me just say, in an age that, his, that, that is providing for us an $11.5 billion self-help industry, it's not surprising that that has filtered into our church experience as well as our expectation in church. You Josh, are here to help me be my best self now. And we may not say that and that we may overplay our critiques of men like Joel Osteen, but it's still fundamentally at the bottom, of the, at the back of things, in the back of our heads, there is still something in our Western minds that believes we deserve better than what we have. It just is there. And we have to understand why it's there. Look what Jesus said in John 16, verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Think about the beauty of these words. It is the, the, the final night where Jesus speaks some of the most profound truths, I would argue the most profound and mysterious message um, of all of his great teachings in the Gospels, the upper room discourse um, for me is, is the most mysterious because it speaks to the promise of the Holy Spirit and it gives us insight into the prayer life of Jesus as the resurrected, ascended King. For John 17 is a picture of Jesus praying as if the glory that he gave up before he came had been restored. Um, and he shows us the very heart and the nature of the Father, and he gives us insight into mysteries and makes 
promise after promise, actually 14 to be exact, but most of us only see 13. And unfortunately, two of the 14 are right here in this one verse, and one of the promises is the one that we ignore. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you might have tribulation. Don't you wish it was a might? I wish it was an option, like a, it's a contingent statement that's based upon how awesome you do. So if it, if it, it would even have been like a little more, I mean, you want to talk about a competition of who could pull themselves up by their, are their, by their boosterings. If he said, some of you will have tribulation, we're like, I'm, I'm going to be that person that does not. Um, and I believe that many Christians do all they can to cloister themselves from pain and suffering, just like non-Christians do. <laughs> There's not much difference. Because uh, we live, I believe the reason America has been decimated by the impacts of COVID is because we are the nation that have mastered the ability to avoid pain. You know what population in our city has not been decimated by COVID? The homeless population. Because they're not worried about, you know, sanitizing every time they go into a room and washing their hands because they t- we're, we're so, we, we literally are, we're all, we're like a society of little John Travolta's in that movie, The Boy in the Bubble. And if you've never seen that, you should see that because it's a horrible movie that's deeply entertaining. John Travolta is a little boy who is allergic to basically everything in the world. And the only way that he can live is to live his entire life inside a little plastic bubble where he can only interact with people through the bubble. That's what we live like. That's how we've become. And honestly, that's not going anywhere for a while. The fear, how sad that we so desperately need human interaction, contact. We need hugs. We, we need touch. We need face-to-face contact has been so disrupted over the last year. Not surprising the amount, the, the stress that we feel like I confessed in the beginning. Um, We just need to speak it out. But here Jesus says, listen, you are going to have tribulation. It's not uh, you might. And that tribulation, he is speaking specifically. Here's the thing that's hard. Suffering is unavoidable. A lot of our suffering is unnecessary because it's our attempts to avoid the very one in whom we've given allegiance. Some of our suffering is brought on. A lot of our suffering is not suffering for the gospel, which is what really Jesus is primarily pointing to. A lot of our suffering is in our attempts to avoid the gospel or our embarrassment of the gospel. Our inability to own the thing that we say we believe. So we become little like secret Christians who don't tell our coworkers and don't tell our families that, hey, just so you know, like kind of the central passion of my life is this person named Jesus. That will bring tribulation because it, it pushes against the streams of this, of this world. You know, it was Malcolm Mudbridge that said, only dead fish go with the current. And we who've come alive are now pushing against the current, but you can't push against the current without it wearing it's still going to be exhausting. It's tiring. It's, 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 it's counterintuitive. And this is why orthodoxy continues to collapse at a rate that's startling in the church is because to hold on to an orthodox vision of human existence is to push against so many currents in our culture that are so powerful, so relentless, that we don't even know how to combat it. And so we suffer in our collapse to those currents because we know they're not true, but we can't bring ourselves to fully admit it or to push back against it because we know we'll suffer when we do that as well by coming into conflict with other human beings, maybe human beings that we love. And so it feels like an unavoidable thing. And then we suffer over the guilt we feel when we neither act as an advocate for Jesus nor stand strongly for anything because of our fear of people. 
And we're left in this horrible no man's land that leads us to a place of spiritual crisis and despair. Because the whole purpose of the church is to be a witness to a dying world. If we're not a witness to those people who do not know Jesus, then what are we doing? Why are we here? And what am I supposed to tell you that Jesus has come to do? It, should, should we just, you know, throw up our hands and say, you know what, if it's true for you, that's what I'm here to support. There are plenty of philosophies out there that, that hold to that. There are churches all over the city that hold to that kind of ideology. Jesus is not the Son of God. He's not the Savior of the world. He is not what he said he is, which is the way, the truth, and the life. He is a, he is a powerful influencer. Man, what a horrible word that's become, isn't it? And yet it's the number one, it's the number one choice for uh, occupational choice for those in high school today in America. I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be a social media influencer that shoves like everybody seems to in social media their positive thinking message right down your throat whether you ask for it or not. Because these are the new priests and priestesses of our current culture who give to us our, our, that great mystery religion of old the woman who rides on the beast, the, the religion of Babylon, which basically says God is found in you. And for us as Christians, that's true only to a certain place, which is Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But the mystery religion takes the truth of that statement and perverts it into an absolute and horrific lie, which is it's not God outside coming in to make his home within you, it's the God that you are and must come into contact with and discover that inward journey into self-realization. And man, it scares me how much we buy into that. So we're not prepared for tribulation and we don't have peace. And this is where <laughs> the bread and the stone begin to come into play. Jesus himself said this. He says, these things I have said to you that you may have peace. But in Matthew 10, verse 34, he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. So are the two writers, Matthew and John, giving us contradictory statements from Jesus? Did he come to bring peace or did he come to bring a sword? Is it not possible that the sword is necessary to discover the peace and in order to actually come into contact with that peace, it comes violently? I know that's true in my own life. Is that I did not experience and I do not experience the peace of God when the self-life, when I listen to the lies of the culture and the world and begin to believe that I am the master of my own destiny, the peace of God immediately becomes a source of unbelievable violence in my soul and in my mind because peace is not something that Jesus gives. It's something that Jesus is. Okay? In Ephesians 2, we are told that he himself is our peace. Well, now you can immediately see how the paradox works. The peace is Christ himself, but Christ is also the light of the world. And that peace that comes with him at the exact same time violently exposes the darkness in us the sins that actually hinder our ability to enjoy the peace that is his presence. But that peace can't be experienced unless there is a surrender to that beautiful work of the perfect physician who must cut away the ugliness in our lives. One of the best illustrations of this truth is actually found in um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis when Eustace the cousin 
of the, he's the cousin that really we, we don't really like, but then he becomes someone that we love. And he, we love him because he has been transformed by that great Christ-like character in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan. And Eustace gives himself in greed and this horrible temper, he, he finds himself turned into a dragon. And the dragon is guarding this giant pile of gold and, and, and it, Lewis brilliantly gives us the picture, a picture that children can understand that, that when we are controlled by things that don't matter, material things, that it can truly turn us into a monster. It doesn't take much to turn us into monsters. In fact, I would argue that we are all monsters on some level um, and we qualify um, ourselves by comparing ourselves to people that we consider to be worse monsters than ourselves. But Eustace, a dragon, is confronted by Aslan. And Aslan offers him freedom from being a dragon because now he's lonely, he's despairing, and he doesn't know how to be the boy that he knows that he is because he's become this thing. And Aslan offers him freedom from being a monster, but he says, but you have to let me utilize my claws, my teeth, to tear away the skin because you just, you're still there, but it's underneath all this stuff and it's going to hurt to cut it away. And Eustace gives Aslan permission and Aslan begins to tear away the layers of the dragon to reveal Eustace the boy. And Eustace shares with his cousins later in the book, it's been a long time since I read it, so if I'm paraphrasing in a way that doesn't seem accurate to the story, this is what I remember and the truth that I pulled from it. <laughs> um, is, that, is that at first when Aslan began tearing away, it hurt horribly, but it began to feel freeing. And he began to feel more and more alive as those layers of lies were pulled away. Jesus, we are told in Revelation, in his, the powerful and terrifying description, if you're to try to draw the description of Jesus um, in Revelation 1, you, you kind of would have the picture of, you know, in my mind when I read it, I don't know why, but I just, it's like a, like a transformer or something. I mean, he's got a, his, his feet are bronze and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, I feel like I had a transformer that shot a sword out of its mouth. Uh, but it, it almost seems like a monster because it's imagery that's meant to point to realities about the very nature and the character of him. And it says, out of his mouth came a two-edged sword and the sound of rushing water. And that two-edged sword is that Jesus can never bring life to us without killing the things that hinder us from being alive. And that sword slays every day. Because the death that we die is, is not once. It's a daily death. Think of the words of Paul. I beg you, brothers and sisters, present yourselves as living sacrifices. By the mercies of God, present yourself a living sacrifice. This is your logical worship. This is the means by which we find freedom, but the freedom comes through the sacrifice. And so we have this beautiful picture that peace actually comes through the tribulation. The cross is where the Spirit works freedom in our lives. I would even go further to say that it is actually in the furnace of our conflict and suffering that his peace and liberation is often experienced the most fully. It's not the avoidance of struggle and pain and difficulty. We must learn to taste death in life if we want life in death. But our picture of peace would be imagined more like this. Look at this. This is peace without paradox. And some of you are like, that looks lovely. It's a Monet, and it's a picture of a calm lake. A lake without any movement, the boat peacefully floating in it, and it's our image of peace. Our image of peace is away from the chaos of, it's the way we think about vacations. We think of peace like a vacation. I'm getting away from the chaos of Portland. I'm going to a place 
where I can, you know, get away from the noise, where I'm away from the suffering, where I can just breathe. And that's a beautiful thing. Respite's necessary. But the peace that Jesus is speaking of that makes the tribulation make sense is actually in the next painting. This is peace in the paradox. This is a famous painting by Rembrandt of Jesus sleeping in the boat in the midst of the storm. That is a biblical vision of peace in the age of grace. Now listen, on this side of eternity, that's, our, that's the more normative reality, is that it is possible to actually experience an internal calm in the midst of unbelievable pressure because Jesus promises to never leave us and to be with us in the midst of it. But that doesn't mean that that previous picture isn't a future promise because there will be a day, we are told, when Jesus comes back and establishes himself as the King of Kings and what we call the second coming and our belief in the creation of new heavens and new earth or recreation, whatever, I don't really care how it works, whether it's this one, it's built out of what's here or it's something altogether new. All I know is it's gonna be awesome and it's gonna be a place where the lion does lie down with the lamb. And there will be legitimate, it's not gonna be respite in the storm anymore, it's just gonna be peace. Because sin is not going to be the controlling reality of the universe any longer. That defeated foe, and it is already defeated, unfortunately, is still very much at play. And so I think that this is what we need to get our heads around when we think about peace. Because now, look at this, the bread of life. Jesus is the bread. Which one of you, if a child asks for bread, would you give him a rock? And Jesus himself says in that prayer, give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need for today. And that God is always prepared to give us what we need, not necessarily what we want. And let's just be fair, even when God gives you bread, often we're disappointed in the bread because we don't like bread by itself. We want something on it. <laughs> That's our beautiful, powerful ability to dress Jesus up into a Jesus of our own making. But Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. That longing that is what it means to be human, that universal drive that somewhere in some activity or condition lies a fullness that is yet to be experienced. Jesus, by the, by the gift of the Spirit, as, as a, a down payment, if you will, His presence in our lives is meant to show us, though much of our life is still marked by what I call frustrated potential, the Spirit of God alive within me, working in and through me, in spite of me, gives me a hope for, the, for this great truth that the best is yet to come. That the longing to surpass where I currently am must have a counterpart satisfaction. The longing wouldn't be there if there wasn't an appropriate fulfillment. We can't long for something that cannot exist. We can only long for that which does exist, but we can't figure out how to get to it. Jesus is the bread that begins to speak to the truth of the longing and actually the corrective to the ways that we pervert the longing, which is what sin does. But Jesus isn't just the bread that nourishes us. Because unfortunately, guys, this is a fact. Jesus is also the stone that maybe is given to the kid because he's the stone of offense. Look at the stumbling stone in 1 Peter chapter 2. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Listen, Jesus will always be 
the source of offensiveness to a lost world. I was just teaching at Ecola Bible College last week um, through the book of Ephesians, and I was sharing with the students, which is so fascinating, is, you know, I asked them, first of all, what is the supreme goal of the Christian life? And I asked each one of them to give me a two-paragraph answer. I like giving homework. It's kind of fun. Um, and they all gave, I should do that with you guys. And listen, I'm not preaching until I get the assignment from every one of you. Um, <laughs> uh, and they, they give me back these papers. And one of the things that was so significant speaks to our inability to understand paradox is that they all said kind of the same thing, almost all of them. And it was half right. They all quoted essentially the Westminster Catechism, which I would argue its supreme statement, I think, is still only half right, which is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, if the Westminster Catechism means by that statement the chief end of man is to glorify God by loving others, then I think it's complete. But I don't think that's generally how it's taken. Is that your, the reason you exist is to bring God glory by your relationship with him. But remember what I said weeks ago, that God said over man in a sinless state, it's not good that man be alone. But man was with God, saying to us that man and God without other fellow human beings is not a, is not a total picture. And that's why Jesus did not say, when he was asked what the most important commandments were, the chief end of man is to glorify God. He said, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment, which is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't look away from your neighbor without looking away from God. You don't get one without the other. Now, you can love man and not love God, but you cannot love God and not truly love one another. Jesus said, by this they will know you are my disciples. That great, what I call the 11th commandment, a singular realization that our ability to love one another is a picture of how evangelism actually happens. Um, this picture is, is a powerful thing for us. And when I was pushing into the students, what I realized is that the moment we make our faith primarily about my relationship with God is the moment that we set ourselves up for the gospel being a continual source of stumbling. It's not just a stumbling block for the world. It will always be a stumbling block for the believer as well because Jesus is the firm foundation in which we stand. He is the rock of, of stumbling because, think about this, what are those called at an airport when you get on those, they're like a, just a flat escalator. I don't know what they're called. It's like a moving floor, whatever, a conveyor belt that herds products called human beings to their, that's what it feels like at an airport anyway. I don't care what stores they add. Um, but when you're on those, you ever notice if you're like walking on it and then you, it, you come to the end and how I almost like face plant every time because I'm not, I'm walking as fast as I can on a thing that's moving and then all of a sudden I just hit this, this foundation that is not moving and it, it stumbles me. I stumble. Jesus is such an unmovable reality in a whole world of uncertainty and squishy ideas and sandy concepts and philosophies that constantly get us. We're so accustomed to walking on things that have no foundation that we hit something solid and inevitably it stumbles us. Might even stub our toe, might even face plant. Jesus even said, the rock, there's a rock that we can either be, it'll either crush you by coming on top of you, which is not what you want, or you can be broken on it. And the Christian's fragrance comes through being broken on the rock that is Christ. And that is why he is both the bread of life and the stumbling rock that offends us. But our refusal to accept him as a rock of offense is the thing that causes us to miss the peace that is possible. And I believe that. We don't have to be afraid of the stumbling bit. We only stumble because we're not accustomed to walking on solid ground. We love and are loved in the hurt, which brings me to the close. And I'm sorry I went long, but I just think this is an important message. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Or you could say peace. He brings peace. He brings comfort 
to us all in our affliction, which means that the affliction, be careful to not make God responsible for the affliction that you experience, but he, we can tenaciously hold to the belief that he always will work through it and often most powerfully meets us in it. In fact, here, what we're told is that comfort comes in affliction. And maybe we're not comforted because we can feel the restlessness of our unwillingness, the fear that keeps us from entering in to the conflict of existence and the call to be witnesses to King Jesus out of a fear of man which leaves us feeling like we are missing out on life because you are, because Jesus is life. But the moment Jesus is your controlling compass, the moment he is your center, the moment your faith is built upon him and his cross, it's no longer anemic. You now have life. But the moment you have life means that you are full of the life of Christ, and which means you also are going to be a target, and which means that you're going to find yourself beat up and a bit bloody. But I would rather be beat up, bruised, and bloody than anemic and stabilized on bed and of no use to anyone. I want to live, and to live is, is risky, it's dangerous. And I love this because it is, it's sometimes I'm, I'm hearing Jesus say, Josh, you don't experience my comfort because you aren't willing to get out of this idea that the only way to live is to avoid being uncomfortable. But you can't be a Christian and, be, <laughs> and live without discomfort because the gospel will always reveal new things that are gonna make us uncomfortable. It's gonna challenge us to say things that, you think I wanted to come and say, you guys, I'm sorry, I know I have not been preparing the way that I ought to for the sermons that I've been giving because honestly, I don't really wanna be a pastor and I'm overwhelmed by you, I'm sorry. That's essentially what I said in case you weren't wanting me to paraphrase that long nervous rambling now that I've built up the confidence of the spirit just gave me what I call spiritual Tourette's and I must say what I have to say um, I don't want to be a pastor I don't want to do this and Jesus is like okay well you want to what what do you want to do you want to still be a rock star at 48 yes Jesus I do what's wrong with that so many things we don't need to get into it right now Joshua Instead, why don't you step into that discomfort of what you're feeling, confess it to others because you can't love me and hide from them. And let's work through it together. And all of a sudden, the fear becomes an adventure and the possibility. And I felt comfort the moment I made a decision to say what I said. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Because if we look through the history of the church, those who have experienced the presence of God most fully were not those who lived in isolation, like the Desert Fathers, but those practic what I call practical mystics who entered willingly into the world's pain as his witnesses. These are the ones that found something worth dying for and often did. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so it is. When we understand that Jesus is both the rock and the bread, when he is our peace in the difficulty, it is then that we are comforted in our suffering as we suffer while we comfort. We bring comfort to others because we have understanding, because we know what it's like to hurt. But we also know what it's like to be loved, and that's where the peace lies, friends. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is what it means to look through the looking glass and to see that Jesus' kingdom is an upside down kingdom and the paradoxes are there, but they're paradoxes because they're true. They're not contradictions. They're ideas that come together in a collision and that collision finds its center in the cross. And that's why it's always good news. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for its ability to bring transformation. Thank you that we can trust in you, our king, our hope, the lover of our souls. Thank you that in weakness, you are strong. That when we decrease, that is when you increase. 
And so, Lord, I pray right now, as we enter into this closing time of worship, that there would just be a stirring in hearts to not be satisfied with hiding any longer. We would not be satisfied with a faith that is marked by a status quo, but that we would recognize that each one of us are as close to you as we choose to be. But none of us get to be close to you because of what we do for you. For all that needs to be done has been done. But it is because of that, because of the immovable reality of your love, that we now strive to enter into your rest. And so Lord, forgive us for escaping life only to find that we're not really living. And Lord, call us back to a place of humility, of brokenness before your cross, of a recognition that unless you move Jesus, we've got nothing. So move in our hearts and in our minds. Convict us, challenge us, comfort us, and transform us. We pray this in your name. Amen.